welcome to the very first episode of the Hybrid South Asians podcast. I'm Masuma. I started the Hybrid South Asians Instagram page in April last year, and I am so excited to introduce a podcast into the mix. Until now, there's been a lot of caption reading for you guys, so hopefully a podcast will allow you all to listen to the voices of Hybrid South Asians and hear all about their identities. For those of you who don't know what the page is about, I essentially aim to document the identities, experiences and histories of the South Asian diaspora. So I am delighted to host Hafsa Zayan as the first guest on the podcast. She is the author of the recently released title, We Are All Birds of Uganda, which won the Murky Books New Writers Prize. For those of you who haven't read the book, I highly recommend checking it out. And if it's on your reading list, don't worry, we won't be giving out any spoilers, so keep listening. Hello, Hafsa, and thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's really great to have you on here. So should we start with you giving us a little overview of what your book is about? Sure, spoiler free, as you say. Um, it, it's a dual narrative. Uh, it follows two timelines. Uh, one is set in modern day Britain. Uh, it follows the story of Samir. He's a second generation uh, South Asian Ugandan immigrant living in London as a lawyer and basically just trying to figure himself out. He has a sort of quarter life crisis um, and, and the story is really his personal development uh, throughout, um, throughout that crisis. The second narrative focuses on Hassan, um, who is an Indian immigrant to, living in Uganda. In, in, but he, he's also um, sort of second generation in the sense that he was born in Uganda. Um, and the story from his perspective begins just after the Second World War. And it charts his sort of journey through um, the turbulent times that, that followed after the British um, left Uganda um, all the way through to 1972 and, and onwards. Brilliantly put. And I have to say that it was a fantastic read and I really recommend it. So I was listening to the Instagram live that you were on with um, South Asian Book Club. And I was surprised to find that you're actually not a South Asian through East Africa yourself, but you've managed to so perfectly express the identity crisis faced by that community. I can be a witness to that as I myself moved to the UK from Tanzania when I was 11 and my family and I are of Indian origin. You describe the identity-related crises so well that we all go through due to twice migration and the generational differences in the book as well. It was almost like you were putting my feelings into words. So why don't you tell us a little about your own hybrid South Asian identity? Did and if so, when did your parents migrate here? Yeah, sure. So I, I'm mixed race myself. So I'm, I'm half African, half South Asian, Nigerian, Pakistani. And uh, my mum was born in, in Nigeria. Um, my mum's a Pakistani um, and she she was born there in, in, in the early 60s. Her, her parents moved there um, from Pakistan. Uh, essentially, my, my grandfather was a teacher. He went there to do it to to do a placement. It wasn't sort of with the intention of immigrating there permanently, but they did end up staying there for 25 years. They loved it. They absolutely loved it. And then, you know, my grandfather, whenever we talked to him um, about, you know, his past, he would always talk about Nigeria with such such you know in such kind of that's how he described his home he described his own never really talked about pakistan in the same way um anyway my, my mother married my father um which was quite controversial at the time um and she and and, and my father they, they moved to the uk um and, and me and my siblings were born here in the uk so i've grown up my whole life um 
being sort of a hybrid, <laughs> a hybrid African uh, South Asian. And I never really met anyone else like myself in the sense that all of my father's side of the family and all of my mother's side of the family sort of married within their own races. Um, we were the only mixed race. Um, and it's just given me more of a more more confusion than you would already have being an immigrant in a western country i have also the fact that i'm you know one foot in the south asian community and one foot in the, in the nigerian community and i i was brought up predominantly in the south asian community probably partly by virtue of the fact that my my mother is the is a south asian um and and so you know i had a i had a bit of an identity crisis growing up anyway because i look african um, and especially to the South Asian community, I look African. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the story that is told in, in We're All Birds of Uganda, it's a, it's a very um, personal story to me in terms of having identity, identity crises. It's um, something that, that I myself have felt very deeply and, and was fairly easy to translate onto the page. That's so interesting to hear. I think we're going to need another book just about your own identity <laughs> crisis. Um, but were you, it's so interesting that you mentioned about um, Pakistanis in Nigeria because I had a friend from university who was from Lahore in Pakistan. And um, when I met her mum, her mum was telling us all these stories about how she grew up in Nigeria. So that's so interesting how there were so many Pakistanis living there. And I think she also had the same story that her parents were teaching out there. Yeah, exactly. So there was a drive by the Nigerian government to get, um, you know, brain power effectively. Oh, okay. um, and, and so I think that that formed the sort of basis of the South Asian community, like particularly Pakistanis in, in Nigeria. I mean, where my mother was, um, there was a big community there. And so all of her close Pakistani friends, a lot of like our uh, extended relatives, they're all Nigerian Pakistanis. Oh, wow. Um, rather than Pakistani Pakistanis. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, very similarly to, to what happened in, um, in, in East Africa, you, yeah. you, you ended up with these communities of South Asians living within, within these sort of, you know, separate bubbles uh, from the local populations. But of course, my mum went to school with, with, um, with the local populations and that's where she met my father. Oh, wow. Um, so what did identity mean for you when you were growing up and what does it mean now? I think... As a as a sort of um, immigrant in this country, and this this applies sort of more broadly than just my my specific mixed yeah. uh, mixed background. It's um when you're when you're growing up, it's kind of something that you you try to sh you know shun. Yeah. Um, I was always very embarrassed at the fact that my mum would pick me up from school in a shalwar kameez and speak Urdu to me mm. through the car, saying you know yaha or whatever yeah. if I was like standing in the playground. And I, I found that very, very embarrassing, um, particu particularly the language thing. I don't know why, but I, I found yeah. it incredibly, you know, just sort of isolating and it made me so different. And I didn't want to be different. I just wanted to be like everybody it's else. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I think when I was younger, I, I went through a process of doing things to try to fit in. I went through a process of wanting to have the same things that everybody else had, wanting to have the same experiences that everybody else was having. And, you know, that was, of, of course, very, very difficult for me um, because my parents wouldn't let me go to all the parties. They wouldn't let me go to sleepovers. They wouldn't let me do any of the things that my friends were doing. And I would do things like, you know, buy the blue eyeshadow that all the other girls were, were wearing because and I, I put it on after I left the house. 
um, you know, on my on my walk to school so that my parents couldn't see what I was trying to do and things like that. So um, identity for me growing up was definitely a process of trying to shed myself of it um, and trying to assimilate as much as I as best as I could into what was predominantly a white community, because that is I grew up in it ineffectively. I mean, I grew up kind of all over the place, but um, my, my you know, I'm thinking specifically of my high school years. I was in a predominantly white school. Um, after that period, sort of going to university, um, where you're sort of encouraged to be a little bit more different and different, different is seen as a good thing. Um, I came a little bit more into my own. I was at Cambridge again, it was predominantly white. Most of my friends were white. Um, I had a few South Asian friends. I had one black friend, you know, it was a, it was a very, um, it was sort of quite an undiverse community that I was specifically, um, a part of and it's interesting in, in that way because um there were these societies like the afro-caribbean society and the sort of Paxoc and um you know the islamic society and i never really felt like i fit into any of them i mean i went to a few of the original kind of opening um you know uh, meetings and stuff but i never continued kept yeah. that up because I, I didn't feel like i really fit in with any of those with any of the societies so sounds like samir <laughs> <laughs> yeah and um and yeah so i mean I, I i think my development of who i am and sort of where i kind of come from and my comfortableness with getting to terms with with all of that kind of came post university for me which is quite late on in um in life i suppose but um i, I felt more comfortable with my identity journey and my identity in itself in the past sort of five years which yeah. isn't a very long time no I think a lot of us can relate I feel like a lot of us grow up and while we're going to school we're so embarrassed about where we come from but I think it's also the way things have changed because suddenly now it's like like you said when you went to uni like being different and having culture and having such an interesting background becomes cool and you're not embarrassed of it anymore um but it's interesting to see like are we actually proud of where we come from and are we just not embarrassed of it anymore because of the fact that it's become interesting to be like that or do we actually feel proud you know it's kind of that distinction yeah it's a very very good point to raise because you always worry that whatever's in fashion right now won't exactly. be in fashion forever um so yeah like right now it's really cool to be black and like everybody yeah. thinks that you know and so okay let me hone in on the fact that you know let me emphasize the black parts of my personality for now because everyone thinks that grime and hip-hop are like really cool and everyone thinks that you know ha having you know it, it, it's, it's a very very good point and it's one thing that i i actually try to highlight a little bit in the book where you know samir's relationship with with jeremiah yeah. um who's his black breast friend um he kind of idolizes jeremiah like a it's kind of kind of like a you know demigod or something he idolizes him to to such an extent and all these features of jeremiah that might yeah. have been considered unfavorable in the past some the way that samir looks at them are you know he considers them very favorably yeah, and exactly. it's a it's, it's a very kind of like fickle um you know relationship that we have with our subcultures and our and our community you know these are diverse diverse communities in 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 england and i just wanted to highlight that a bit because there is a fear for people who are of of people of color and people of, of different backgrounds that, that that they won't they won't be cool for much longer yeah for sure um so how would you define home for yourself i think for me home is is really just where where my my family is and the people that i love are um because you know i 
I grew, I was born in the UK, but I lived in Saudi. I lived in the States. I, I lived in various parts of the United Kingdom, oh, wow. moved a lot because of my parents' jobs. And I never really, I've never felt attached to any one place. I've never, and I, and I mean that not just in terms of bricks and mortar. I mean that also in terms of country. Yeah. Um, I've, I've always felt like a bit of an international child or a child of the world. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I was the kind of person who was very, um, I found it very easy to make friends and say goodbye to friends and, you know, fall in love with places and say goodbye to places that I'd, I'd love. Yeah. Um, just because, you know, I, I went to 12 different schools when I was growing up just to sort of highlight how much we oh, moved. Wow. Um, so I, I, I've never really felt like, okay, well, this is my home. I think the, the thing that's made me feel like home, you know, that's made me feel like I belong somewhere is just who, who I love and who I'm with. And so for me right now, home is, you know, my husband and home is my sister and home is my, my family. Um, and I don't, I don't really tie it down much more than that. No, I completely understand. And I feel like I'm coming to terms with that as well. And just not like being okay with the fact that it's okay to not be patriotic about just one country or like just not feel patriotic about any country. Um, and just, you know, define home by your own terms, essentially. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so what was it like growing up as a Pakistani Nigerian? Because a lot of South Asians, especially the older generations, are very anti-black, especially when it comes to marriage. And how was it growing up, we you know, with different languages and things like that? Yeah, so I I didn't actually learn Hausa, which is my uh, father's side of the okay. family sort of like main language. And that that was difficult in the sense that um, a lot of my Nigerian family, uh, particularly, I mean, the ones who stayed in Nigeria don't speak very good English. So my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, um, didn't actually really speak a word of English and I didn't speak a word of Hausa. So as you can imagine, it, communication was difficult. Yeah. Um, and it just meant that we couldn't foster the same kind of relationship that I ended up having with my maternal grandparents who were Urdu speakers. And because I'm an Urdu speaker, um, it was easy enough for, for us to do that. But also they speak English as well. Um, so yeah, the, the language, the language thing was, could be, you know, it was in the end quite a barrier, I think for, for me to develop a closer connection with my Nigerian side of the family. Um, I, I have always, and, and, and most of my Nigerian side of the family lives in Nigeria, whereas most of my mother's immediate family, so she has four, four siblings, they all, you know, they don't live in Nigeria or Pakistan. They all, they all live sort oh, of spread out across the West. Some, some of them in America and, and, and therefore, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with, with my Pakistani cousins growing up. So for many reasons, I've felt a massive, massively more part of the South Asian community or the Pakistani community um, than I did growing up, um, uh, you know, as a Nigerian. Um, and whilst I've always felt very accepted by my family, I certainly haven't felt that way um, in the South Asian community at large. So my sister and I, you know, we, we, while we live in the UK and, um, you know, the rest of my sort of mother's side of the family live not in the UK. So we're the only ones here in, in the UK. And so the, the South Asian communities that we formed part of here um, do not comprise our family, do not know our history, do not know our background. Um, and, you know, they see two little black girls walking into the room and they're immediately like, why are these girls here? We're the only ones who look like that. In, in the room. Um, and so, you know, I, I experienced this kind of thing growing up being my whole, my whole life. I mean, we'd go to Madrasa, you know, a mosque um, yeah. for, for, for like sort of Sunday learning and 
we we would be just Im immediately it would be assumed that we were converts because we were we were like black um and you know everyone would sort of look at us a bit funny and actually the morbi sub liked us because he thought we were converts so that was actually quite a good thing um, <laughs> but it made all the other girls resent us because because we were getting favorable treatment because you know he thought we were reverts so um yeah it's 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 been a it's been a funny funny odd mix i mean now it's a lot easier because you know i'm older i don't go to madrasa anymore i can hold my own in, in the south asian community i found my own south asian community like my own friends that are south asian like yeah. i have a group um and you know it's it's all very comfortable and everyone sees me who i know and love as you know being south asian so i don't feel like i have to prove myself anymore um but i think when you're a kid it's a lot harder yeah for sure um so how does your mixed identity and your lived identity from moving around a lot play out in your ways of life so in food for example i'm guessing there was a lot of hybrid food and hybrid culture when you were growing up again an, an interesting interestingly not really in the sense that my mother again because she's the she's the pakistani pakistani one and, and of my parents she did most of the cooking so i grew up eating okay. largely pakistani foods and there was to some extent you know i guess she had her few attempts at making um nigerian food but my father always said they weren't <laughs> very accurate <laughs> or very good and we did have the occasional nigerian guest we had one of my um very 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 close aunties on my on my dad's side who used to come and stay with us a lot um you know when she would come and stay i would get tour and i would get you know all the kind of traditional yeah. nigerian foods um, but it wasn't very often. I mean, it wasn't what we were having in our day to day. In yeah. our day to day, I was having, I was literally having curry seven days a week, um, courtesy of my mother. Um, and interestingly, I mean, I, I was talking to my mum about this because I was wondering when I was doing research for the book and I was learning more from sort of my in-laws, my in-law side of the family um, about the food stuff that they cook um, and how it's kind of mixed with East African uh, flavors and East African products. Um, to make things like corn curry, sweet corn curry oh, wow. and things like that. Um, I was asking my mother, is the food that you cook sort of a mixture of Nigerian and, and Pakistani food? And she, she said no. So she said, this is, all, this is all very traditionally Pakistani food or random food that I've just made up. <laughs> so oh. yeah, so th that kind of um, mixing of the, you know, sort of Nigerian foodstuffs with Pakistani spices and, and whatnot didn't, didn't really happen apparently for my mum. Uh, whereas um, my understanding is that it did happen um, a lot yeah, in, the, a in lot. the East African. Sometimes we eat food for dinner and I'm just like, I don't even know if this is Indian or if it's East African. But there's some <laughs> yeah. foods that's like, I'll ask my mum and she'll be like, oh, I don't know. I think we've just adapted it and added spices and made it our own. And like, there's also like the mandazi, which is the East African, mm. like sort of, you, you talked about it in the book, yeah, the <laughs> yeah. donut. Um, but like I just, we, I've grown up thinking, you know, that's an Indian food and it's an Indian thing and like all my South Asian friends should know, but it's actually East African and it's so hard because when you're growing up, you don't actually like make that distinction. Mm. Um, so you're a lawyer by profession and you wrote this book in six months while working full time. How did you manage to do that? <laughs> With a lot <laughs> of difficulty. <laughs> With a lot of difficulty. I mean, look, it just, it just took a lot of sacrifice. Um, yeah. I don't, because I'm a lawyer, I'm quite good at working to deadlines. So having a deadline yeah. definitely um, spurred me on to do it. Um, I, I probably wouldn't have written the book if I didn't. I, w I mean, I definitely wouldn't have written the book if I, if I hadn't won the competition and I hadn't been told, yeah. okay, well, you've won now, so now you need to write it. Um, I, just, I, just, um, I just sacrificed 
all the free time I had and I spent the free time I had writing. So all my weekends and any evening I had where I wasn't working, I was yeah. writing. I basically didn't see any people like that I knew except for my, except for my husband who I live with and I barely saw him um, for, for six months. Oh, wow. Um, it's funny how much we can do when we're actually given, like, given a time pressure and deadline to do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and why did you become a lawyer? Do you think the decision to become a lawyer was influenced a lot by your Pakistani and Nigerian background? Yeah, I mean, there is obviously this thing of sort of immigrant children needing to do these sort of professional jobs and God forbid you want to become a dancer or a singer or something. Um, but but I mean, for me personally, be, being a lawyer was something I'd always wanted to do anyway. It, it was probably subconsciously drilled into me that doing something other than that, being a writer or, or, or any other kind of non-typically professional, traditional career was not appropriate. But um, it, I, it, I wasn't sort of, you know, told or pressured into, be a, into being a lawyer, quite the opposite. I, when I said I wanted to be a lawyer, I mean, I was actually told by my Nigerian grandfather that that was completely inappropriate. I must be a doctor because being a doctor was the only sort of viable career in the world. Um, so uh, there was quite a lot of resistance from my grandfather on my dad's side, okay. but eventually he came around and my parents, of course, they never, they never cared. They, they were always very happy with me wanting to be a lawyer. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I never considered doing anything other than something that was a traditional professional career. Um, and law seemed to be something that I felt quite suited to. And I certainly didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. But it's so funny that you even picking a career from the traditional careers just you still don't feel good enough <laughs> no, um, yeah. so how did you come to write about the Ugandan expulsion of Asians in like you know rather than writing about say for example like the Nigerian Pakistanis who'd settled in Nigeria yeah so I mean the, the story was one that I just really didn't know much about I'd never really heard of it until I met my in-laws and of course I, I mean I didn't know that many East African Asians um, and so I, you know, I guess if, if, if I had known some, perhaps Kenyans, Tanzanians, um, obviously Ugandans, yeah. I might have heard a bit about this story, but I hadn't, and I hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen sort of like Mississippi Masala, I'd never seen the other, the one other, you know, Last King of Scotland, which doesn't even really talk about the expulsion. Um, I, it wasn't something that was in the mainstream media. I hadn't read any books about it. I just had no exposure to it whatsoever. And so... The reason I wanted to write about it is because, I mean, of course, compared with Kenya and, and, and Tanzania, it was so extreme. Yeah. The, the, the order itself was so extreme. And um, it was actually, you know, a violation of international law. And it, 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 was, it, was, um, it was something that we didn't know anything about. My generation, people who aren't of that background, aren't East African Asian, wouldn't necessarily know anything about because there's, no, there's nothing out there to, to teach you about it unless you go looking for it specifically. Um, and so that, that was really why um, it, it, you know, Pakistanis in Nigeria, great, you know, great sort of story and interesting, but nothing is as, as, as extreme as what had happened in, in Uganda. And of course, you know, what happened in Uganda was a part of British colonial history. And, yeah. and that's the thing, they came to, to the UK off the back of their British passports. Um, and again, something that's a part of our history, but nobody talks about. And so yeah. Unlike you know the Pakistani Nigerians, many of whom once they once they um sort of finished their term uh, in 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 Nigeria, gone, went back to Pakistan. Um, 
so yeah that that was really why why uganda yeah i think also a lot of south asian diaspora novels that i've read have always been stories of people who have like directly moved from south asia to the west there hasn't been much written about twice migration either from east africa or nigeria or anywhere really um so in the book mr shah says you'll never be anybody if you work for somebody this idea of success, referring to the fact that having your own business is the best route to success, is quite a common outlook within the Khorja East African Indian community due to their history and lineage. How do you think this view compares to other South Asian outlooks of the meaning of success, perhaps from your Pakistani side? Yeah, I mean, look, for, for me personally, and I'm not sure how much this is a melding of Nigerian and Pakistani kind of cultural expectations but you know it, it was very much the focus was always on education and and the route to success would be through education so as much as I was you know growing up I wasn't allowed to do anything if it was something that was educational I was allowed to do it so I obviously spun everything to be educational so that I could be allowed to try and do it wasn't allowed to go to sleepovers but I could go on an overnight school trip if you know, there was you know an educational reason for it and so you know definitely within my family and I'm not sure whether this is the you know Pakistani or Nigerian influence or just my parents specifically but education was the way to, to success I mean my personal experiences of the South Asian community at large, which and the communities I've been in are, are sometimes Pakistani, sometimes sometimes they are Gujarati. That you know, it's it's varied. Um, but uh, the you know the the idea of oh my my daughter or my son is a doctor, lawyer, banker, the, these kinds of things, these professional careers, um, is is one that's very intimately tied to um, the, the the sense of pride, really. Um, and the sense of um, you know achievement that the parents of these people feel with having their their children um, rank up all these sort of um, uh, accreditations, and I think that that's what I experienced growing up. I was always being compared to other children in these communities, and always you know being sort of told or being hinted at that you should you should try and be better than this kid yeah. um and so that, that is you know it's not it's not to do with business or owning businesses and it's not to do with sort of trade or anything like that which is something that i've seen again recently um from my education about the south asian um east african community which i didn't really know much about before um, but yeah i think the concept of success in in the communities i've grown up in has been very much focused on uh, professional careers, professional traditional careers, and sort of you know, ranking up those A's and 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 yeah. extra sort of PhDs and whatnot as much as you can possibly do. Yeah, no, I definitely think I feel like there's a balance between like there's emphasis on being educated, but there's also an emphasis on you need to earn money. So it's like mm. you, once you go down the education path, and then you're like, oh, I want to do a PhD, and they'll come back at you with, but you're not earning anything and xyz and start a family um so many things <laughs> so, so do, many you know? things being a woman is the hardest isn't Honestly. it because na nowadays you're expected to not just have the kids and yeah, the family but you're also expected to have the career be top of yeah. the class um right so could you tell us a bit about the research pro process you undertook for writing the book yeah sure so the i think for me particularly i mean the husson chapters they involved a lot of research. So 
I mean, I started the book with the first Hassan chapter in the sense that the to enter the competition, yeah, you had to write two thousand five hundred words, and so I, the writing those two thousand five hundred words probably took me two to three hours, but it took me, uh, you know, I think two to three weeks to do the research that went into that first chapter, and that was it didn't take me two to three weeks for every Hassan chapter, yeah. <laughs> thankfully. Otherwise, I definitely wouldn't have written the book in time. But um, that that initial re, you know outlay which fed into mo- you know much of what ended up um you know forming the sort of basis of the Hassan story um you know it required me to sort of spend a few uh, evenings in the british library reading books that i basically couldn't afford to buy didn't <laughs> want to buy it's like these huge academic texts um and you know otherwise spending hours and hours on the internet and you know the internet is just such an amazing amazing uh, resource um for, for this for this particular story there's so many academic yeah. articles out there there are oral histories there are you know there, there's there's so much information I mean there's YouTube videos contemporaneous YouTube videos of the BBC you know standing in the queue outside the immigration office at the time uh, you just need to look for them um, and so a lot of a lot of research went into the Hassan chapters in particular Samir was easier to write because you know Samira is more close to me and who I who yeah. I am and so a lot of it was just coming from my personal experience um writing about I, law the, yeah exactly writing about law um but but when he went to Uganda and I'd never been to Uganda before before I wrote this book um I I had to take take a trip to Uganda and then yeah. I had to you know meet meet the locals and I had to meet any South Asians who were living there and I had to talk to people and so I ended up you know I had actually written the whole book before I did the trip to Uganda and then I went to Uganda and I basically rewrote the oh, second wow. half of the book. Added the Mandazi um, bits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all, all the things that he does in the book I did. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, it, it, was, it was very research heavy, very research intensive. Um, I think I, there's a bibliography at the back of the book. For, yeah, I saw that's, that. Just, that's yeah. probably like 60% of the sources <laughs> I consulted. Um, I didn't want it spanning like pages and pages yeah. and pages, but... But I wanted people to have a flavor of the kind of because because the information in these texts is extremely interesting. It's fascinating, yeah. especially from an academic perspective. If you're reading, if you're reading, you know, for for fiction, you don't need to put this all into the book. But you know what, what what's in the what's in the um what's in the academic stuff is just really really fascinating. Um. So, did you also consult your husband's family as part of the research process? Yeah, yeah, I did. I I, I definitely did because. They obviously have first-hand primary experience yeah. of, of the expulsion themselves. Um, my husband's family, not not all of them would probably remember it because some of them were quite young when they were expelled, sort yeah. of around the same age as you, okay. um, but, you know, sort of 10, 11. But my sort of um, uncle-in-law was in his mid-20s at the oh, expel- wow. time of the expulsion. So he remembers everything. Um, and so I took, you know, I had I had did a few interviews with him yeah. and I had him read the manuscript um with a focus on the Hassan chapters um for for kind of commentary and you know he he was very helpful. Well, it's quite good to have that um first-hand knowledge because when you jump into a lot of research you feel like sometimes you can get into it so academically you're like oh I but I don't know what family dynamics are and all of that so writing a book in that aspect it's quite nice to have your husband's family be um part of the research process yeah definitely I mean I would highly recommend if if you haven't already looked at the um oral history project that Carleton University did because 
there are tons of transcripts there and they all tell these individual families experiences oh wow of of you know i, th I think there's like probably 30 or 40 um full sort of interview transcripts of of the, these were these are the members of the diaspora living in canada but you know of course it's the same it's the same yeah. story um and it's fascinating and it, it all gives you exactly like you say that familial kind of personal perspective you know that's that's helpful to read alongside the academia yeah and each family would have been impacted so differently and gone through yeah. different like you know how Hassan went through what he did in the book um so do you think there could be a sequel to the book <laughs> I, don't I don't everyone says this because of the ending I, of yeah it. I was like I was like is there not another chapter it wasn't like <laughs> it wasn't like a cliffhanger but it was like there's possibility for more and I'm like I don't know how I feel about this <laughs> I've had a lot of um yeah mixed reviews on the ending some people really loved it and understood it other people just absolutely hated it and without <laughs> sort of giving away any spoilers I mean it the ending is you know symbolic of the migrants experience yeah. throughout the, you know throughout their lives you know and so it's it's it it it, it wasn't intended to sort of lead to a sequel it yeah. was more it was more intended to be a rounding yeah of the story of the migrant yeah for sure. um yeah so it, it wasn't at all um yeah it, I, I i don't envisage there'll be a sequel <laughs> there'll be another book but it, it probably won't be about <laughs> uganda and east africans um so lastly before we wrap up this episode how do you think identity will transform with the next generation of hybrid South Asians? So our children and their children? Well, I hope that, um, you know, I think as time moves on, we're, we're becoming more hybrid. All of us are becoming more hybrid. I mean, I, I'm half Pakistani, half Nigerian. I've married someone who is um, half English, half South Ugandan, you know, South Asian Ugandan. Yeah. So my children will be a quarter of each of these different mixes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for them, and I mean, I'm, I know tons of, tons of sort of people now who are becoming, you know, the cultures are becoming more and more mixed and you're getting more and more kind of, like you say, hybrid. Um, I think, I hope that for them, you know, they, they feel like they are part of a wider, community where everyone is becoming more and more mixed i mean it's probably going to take several more generations than yeah. the immediate next generation but that's where i hope to see the future um that's where i see the future going ultimately yeah. it's no, gonna be a lot of confusion my kids will be I know. confused <laughs> um yeah i think i mean it's happening slowly um and i think also there will be a lot of hybrid mixes because i feel like we've we've People, us who have settled in the West have already gone through the whole migration experience. So now it's like, you know, we're going to be settled here, but there's going to be a lot more intermixing with other races and different people because there's all that exposure. Whereas previously it was very much stay within your community, stay within your race. Otherwise, you know, you're committing a sin, X, Y, Z. But um, yeah. Yeah, because we're, I mean, we're, we're the generation that haven't come from yeah. wherever, you know, whichever country, we're the generation that have been born here. Yeah, exactly. Um, so rather than taking, so I feel like it's so important to like keep that culture alive, but then I feel like our children are going to gain more culture from different things as well. So it's going to be very interesting to see. Um, 
it's a difficult um it's a difficult question as well because yeah. the more and more mixed we become you know there's the fear yeah. of losing of losing these really important aspects of no, your exactly of your culture like i would love for my children to be ruby speaking but because my husband's not ruby speaking they're probably not going yeah. to be ruby speaking it's and difficult. that's a big blow for me you know um and and that you know there's a struggle there and i think that also that you know with the world that we live in now there's just so much um difficulty being hybrid in the sense that at least i felt like i need to kind of prove who i am otherwise everyone just jumps down your throat you can't you can't sort of say that you're one thing when you're not really that thing yeah you know like hilaria baldwin recently claiming that she was spanish and you yeah. saw the kind of outcry because she's not ethnically ethnically spanish at all but she grew up in spain and she said she feels like she's spanish yeah but that's not acceptable now um so there's a fine line there because you know you, you've got to you know, if if I say, well, I feel like I'm British, even though I'm not ethnically British. Yeah. Um, am I going to get you know people jumping down my throat? So, I, there's a. It's all becoming quite confusing. Yeah, um, and like because what's of... right and wrong, it's hard to make that draw the line, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, which is why, well, with my page, because I don't know if you've seen, but you have a pie chart for each person, and so you can see their like actual ethnic identity. Um. So, for example, you might be fully Indian but then there's also the identity that you've created through culture so it's not saying that those identities are you as you know a race or that's where you know you're from or that's your land but because you've either been brought up there or something it plays a part in your identity so you could say I feel 20% British 20% mm -hmm. um, East African but mm -hmm. the rest is Indian and it's like sort of giving someone a platform to just say that I, you know, you have to understand that that's not who you are completely, but it's a part of identity. And I think that's so important. Oh, I completely agree. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been really great chatting and learning more about the book and yourself. And I look forward to some new novels. Since you can write one in six months, I think we can expect about two a year at this rate. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. No worries at all. Thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this first episode. Please do share the podcast with others so that we can grow this community. And if you have any feedback for me, please do get in touch. That's all for now, and I'll be back in the next episode. Bye. Bye.